I, I also have the privilege of introducing our speaker this morning, and I'm going to introduce our speaker, and then we're going to have the scripture read, and then you get to hear from one of our young guys that, and I'm excited about the young men that God's brought to College Park, and the young women, and, and particularly in the preaching ministry, we have some young guys that are growing and developing, and the one that's going to speak to us this morning in this service is Joe Whitmer. He's our head of... He's our pastor. As a matter of fact, he's going to be undergoing ordination before too long, so you might want to start praying for him already, right, Joe? Um, God brought him to us a couple years ago under the ministry of Don Helton, and I've gotten to know Joe pretty well. We play basketball together, and we talk about the scriptures together, and I just love having a man that has a love for the church. He has a love for young people, and, and he has a love that says, let's, I mean, his prayer is, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, and, and I, 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 love a, I love a guy like that, and so he's going to come. He's going to minister the word to us this morning, and I can tell you this, you'll be blessed, and I would encourage you to have your Bibles open, because that's where he's going to be, and to listen carefully, and to have open open hearts, and God will speak through him. So right after the scripture, Joe, look forward to hearing from you, brother. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, College Park. Let's pray together as we start this morning. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us as we need to hear from you. Help us as we open your word. Use your Holy Spirit to convict hearts and minds, to change lives. God, use the words that come from my mouth today to be only a reflection of what you would like to say to us this morning. God, guide our time together, be in charge, and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So my question for you this morning is, have you ever unexpectedly been motivated to do something that you knew was going to take a lot of time or effort or work? You know what I'm talking about? It's that Forrest Gump moment where you get up off the porch and you just start running, One of my friends told me he was unexpectedly uh, started to work out because he was driving in his truck and when he went over the bump, the first place that he felt that was in his stomach. He said, it's it's time. It's time to start. For me, I clearly remember being in sixth grade and being called to a school assembly like we'd gone too many times before. And as the curtains opened that morning, there was a single cello player on the stage. And he started playing through Pachelbel's canon, and I just went, wow. And then other instruments started coming on the stage, and they came together, and the symphony of Pachelbel's canon started playing, and I just sat in awe of the sound that came from a cello, and I said, I want to do that. I was motivated, 
And it took practice and it took hours and it took a couple tears when mom and dad said, it's time. And I said, I don't want to. And he said, no, it's time. But I was unexpectedly motivated to do something, to practice and to pursue something. Well, this morning, we find Paul motivating the Philippians to do something. And he uses the gospel here in chapter 2 to motivate the Philippian believers to pursue unity and to practice humility in their life because it will be a reflection of what God has done in them. See, if I were to sum up this passage this morning into one big idea, it would read like this. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 4 is gospel motivation for pursuing unity through the practice of humility. One more time, gospel motivation for pursuing unity through the practice of humility. And in typical Paul writing fashion, what he does is he bookends this big idea. At the front is a charge to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We heard that last week in chapter 1 and verse 27. Pastor Dale eloquently put that together and connected it to some modern stories. And then on the other end is this perfect example of humility in chapter 2, starting in verse 5. And we'll hear from Pastor Joe Bartimus next week about that. Well, this morning, I want to walk through that big idea step by step and discover how it's pulled straight from Scripture and then glory in the application to our lives today. So let's start with just that first part, gospel motivation in verse 1. Read what it says there. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So let's start simple with those first two words, the words so and if. That word so can also be translated therefore. And as I talk to my students in in youth ministry, I say anytime you see the word therefore, you have to find out what the therefore is there for. And the reason it's there is because it directly connects us back to what Paul has just said in chapter 1, verse 27. See, what happens here is in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul starts a thought that he continues all the way through chapter 2 and verse 11. So we have to read this passage in light of what Paul has just said previously. That's what the so is there for. He's connecting that to the previous part. Then the word if. If in our language falls a little short because it can bring some doubt. Well, if this is happening or if that really is what's going on, but that's not the correct word here. If is more correctly translated because or assuming. So it could read this way. Therefore, because I've called you to walk in a manner worthy of the, of the Lord, and assuming, and because there is comfort, and there is encouragement, and there is participation, and there is affection and sympathy, then here's what you need to do with that. So as we start out here, Paul makes a transition. And what he does, again, in 127, is he's talking about how we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And last week we heard that this is also an idea of how we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel as it relates to outside forces that might challenge that. Listen to what he says in 127 again. He says this. Let me read it from here. 
Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he's saying we're walk worthy because there are forces outside of the church that will oppose that message. And then he comes here in chapter 2 and verse 1 and he says, you contend for the faith from forces inside the church and we do that by pursuing unity and practicing humility. If we are to be successful in walking in a manner pleasing to the Lord, we must be aware of the things that will bring harm to that both outside and inside the church. The way in which we navigate this is to cling so closely to the gospel It motivates everything we do. This is why Paul is bringing it to the attention of the Philippians and bringing it to our attention this morning. And he does this with fourfold gospel motivations. And he does this very quickly in rapid-fire succession here in chapter 1. We're going to break those down real quick. The first one is this. Encouragement in Christ. And what this is, is it's the remembrance of our salvation experience when we receive the Holy Spirit and the encouragement that we had at that moment, I remember my own salvation experience. Five years old with my mom and my dad kneeling before the couch and praying and understanding fully for the first time that I was forgiven because of what Christ had done on the cross and being encouraged. You guys remember that? And then again and again and again throughout my Christian life, when I would try and fail, that I'd want to be a saint but still sin, and being encouraged from the gospel and through and reminded of what Christ had done for me and reminded to stick to the commitments I had made, the encouragement that we received from Christ. Well, as if encouragement isn't enough, Paul doesn't stop there, and he moves on to the next gospel motivation. He says there's encouragement in Christ, And there's comfort from love. This comfort from love speaks to the realization that we are loved unconditionally. This love comes through Christ who gave his life for us. It's the love we sing about. It's the love that's talked about throughout scripture. In 1 John chapter 4 verses 10 through 11 it says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, when we realize the love that God has lavished on us, and understand that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, there is much comfort there. It's almost as if Paul is reminding the believers of the comfort from love by asking the question, do you really know that God loves you in a great way, in a great and comforting way? Do you know that today? That God loves you in a great and comforting way? Because that will motivate what comes next. He then moves on. To the third gospel motivation, and this is participation in the Spirit. And the word participation there comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. 
It also is used again in chapter 1 and verse 5 when Paul talks of the believers fellowshipping with him or koinonia-ing with him through their participation in the gospel. This is so much deeper than the shallow fellowship we sometimes experience today. And we're going to talk a little bit more on that later. But our spiritual lives are inexorably connected to fellowship, participation with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, or as Tim Keller calls him, the forgotten God, is the empowering force in a believer by which we live out gospel lives. You see, without fellowship, without participation in the Spirit, we are powerless to live out biblically rooted unity in the church. Powerless to live out humility that comes from Christ or walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul is reminding us that participation in the Spirit is motivational. It is helping. It is a good reminder that we look at to live out these things. Like any good coach or teacher, or pastor, Paul continues to point out the things received in the gospel. You know those coaches that would do that? Come on, you're doing a good job. Remember the last game. Remember your training. Do this, do this. Go, go, go. Paul is saying the same thing here. He's saying, remember there's encouragement. Remember there's comfort from love. Remember there's participation in the Spirit. And then he says this. He says there's affection, and there's sympathy. This refers to the divine compassion and mercy that came from Christ Himself to us at salvation and now passes through us to others. He's saying here, if there's any emotions or feelings that are stirred up in you because of what Christ has done, what what I'm about to say will be so worth your time, your efforts, and your energies. Paul is emotionally compelling here. He has taken the Philippians back to the graced memories of the supernatural work of Christ in their souls at salvation. It's almost as if he's going back through old photos and reliving encouragement and comfort and fellowship and affection, which drives them to live a certain way right now. Now, I know the Philippians didn't have photographs or tintype even back then, but you guys know what this is like. To go through an old photo album. Remember those old things? My mom has like 60 of them. You sit down on the couch like this big. Flip them open. Or now today you pull out your phone. You go through your photo stream. Or your Instagram feed. Or your Facebook archives. See what pictures do is they bring you immediately back to moments. And those moments affect the way that you live life now. This is so effective. Sometimes the pictures don't even have to be your own for them to stir up those emotions. Let me, let me prove it to you here. Let me share two of my favorite um, times with you. Here's the first one. Okay, the first thing I think about when I see that picture, I'm like, who's the goofball on the left? And why does he have buckles on his shoes? Is he going to get married or going to get on the Mayflower? I'm not sure. But uh, then the second thing I think about is look at that bride. Nope, not the second picture. That one will come next. Let's go back. Look at the bride. What this picture brings me back to is that day when I sat next to my wife and I stood next to my wife and I held onto my wife's hands and I made promises to her. I said, I will love you for forever. I will never leave you. 
And that emotion that's brought up in me, that fellowship, changes the way that I live today. When I look at that picture, it makes me want to be a better husband. It makes me want to love my wife in a greater way. That's the first one. You've got to sneak at the second one. The second glimpse is this. This is me as a first-time dad. And the first thing that I think about when I see this picture is the reason I'm in that position is because the night before, I had spent hours walking up and down the hallway of our single little ranch house trying to get this little dude to sleep. But this was my favorite thing to do with him the next morning. I'd pull that beanie down over my head and my son would just fall asleep on my chest. And I tell you what, this brings me back to affection and sympathy and love and commitment. That memory affects what I do today. It makes me want to be a better dad to my kids. This is what Paul is doing. Just like these pictures, the picture of the gospel is emotionally compelling and supernaturally enables us to live out what he calls us to next. Unity and humility right now in the church and in our lives. Can you go back to that moment of salvation? To that picture of the gospel when it showed up in your life? Go back and think. There's encouragement and comfort and participation and sympathy and affection. And now we live out of that place. Paul motivates us to go to that place. Now the motivation that comes from the gospel is not the main point of this passage. But it is important for us to be able to live out what comes next. You see, we are compelled We are pulled, we are encouraged, and we are empowered by the gospel to live God-honoring lives. Paul goes on further to explain what that looks like, and it starts by pursuing unity. Read about that with me in verse 2, pursuing unity. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The call here is to unity. Note that Paul's thoughts begin with the words, the same mind, and ends with the words, of one mind, both of which speak of this life intent on a unified purpose, a single goal. Well, what is that goal? It's the goal that we've been called to in chapter 1 and verse 27 to walk worthy of the gospel. It's the goal that we've been motivated to in verse 1 of chapter 2. This gospel-saturated togetherness or unity. I think that's a good way to define it. Gospel-saturated togetherness. The theologian R. Kent Hughes in his commentary sums up verse 2 in this way, talking about that gospel-saturated togetherness. The call here is to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. It's a plea that the Philippians be gospel-oriented as they relate to and care for one another. Paul has a purpose for this. And the unity that Paul is calling them to isn't this vacuous, empty kind of philosophical togetherness. It's one fraught with dynamic purpose. You see, anyone can hang out. The world actually does this very, very well. They can be united. Sports team fans, Indy 500 car racers, 
music lovers, bar buddies can be united. But this is different. The unity we see in the world is temporary bonding over the interests that are ultimately and finally self-serving. But the unity we have in the gospel is beautiful and an eternal knitting together of hearts and minds and purpose over a God-serving, Christ-honoring, others-involving and self-pleasing purpose. This is the unity that we've been called to. The idea of this gospel-saturated unity is not just talked about here, but it's seen again and again throughout the scriptures by Paul. Listen to what he says to the Romans in, in chapter 12. He says this, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then do the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, it was on the screen this morning as we opened our service. He says this, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Does that sound familiar? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Why? Because we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then finally to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Why is unity so important in the church? Why does Paul talk about it again and again and again throughout all of scriptures to different churches addressing different problems? The reason is this, is because to be gospel-oriented is to pursue unity. To be gospel-oriented is to pursue unity. It reflects our commitment to the gospel. One of the core values of this church is biblical unity in diversity. As you walk out today, the archway in front of this sanctuary has that on it. It says biblical unity and diversity. And here's how they define it. Listen to how they define biblical unity and diversity. Within the framework of sound doctrine, we value an atmosphere of theological freedom with humility in a non-divisive spirit. Why? Because we want to reflect the unified beauty of the Father, Son, and Spirit participating in the building of a multifaceted kingdom of our triune God in our theological systems, our ministry forms, and our personal relationships. We are committed to biblical unity in diversity. This is what makes unity so essential and beautiful in the Christian life and in Christ's church. Ready? It reveals to the world who is starved for true unity. An invisible Godhead working through his people. An eternal togetherness that is the longing of every soul. Let me say that again. This is why unity is so beautiful and essential. is because it reveals to the world who is starved for true unity, an invisible Godhead working through his people, an eternal togetherness that is the longing in every soul. You see, when we practice unity, we reflect God and his redemptive purpose in the world. In a world of differences, whether that's a difference of opinion, or musical taste, or preaching styles, 
the spirit-indwelled believer will pursue unity. Because to be gospel-oriented is to pursue unity. But here we are coming to the last point. To pursue unity, you must practice humility. Look at what he says then as he turns to verse 3 and 4, practicing humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look at that clear put off and put on in verse 3. Don't do this. Do nothing from selfish ambition, but instead put on humility and count others more significant than yourself. My friend Dustin Crow tweeted this week. He said, Philippians 2 isn't just about stop it, but replace it. He's a smart dude, so I stole that from him. (laughs) This humility is defined as a lowliness of self. A lowliness of self that is completely despised and rejected throughout history and makes very little sense in our culture today. But a kind of lowliness of self that is the highest virtue for a child of God. So how does someone do this? How does someone with superior abilities regard others as more significant? Well, they use those abilities as self-assessment in the light of scriptures. Or instead of fixing your eyes on the things and the points in which you excel, we fix them on the things and the points in which our neighbor excels us. This is humility. I've always struggled with humility. And I asked my wife if it was okay to say that, and she said, yes, that's true. So you can, you can go ahead and say that. <laughs> you can say you struggle with that because you do. Well, because to me it seemed like weakness, right? It seems like you're willingly getting walked on, or sometimes it seems fake, like, oh, I'm so humble, right? <laughs> if you, yeah, okay, I probably should, if you want to, if you want to read my book, Humility and How I've Achieved It, you can buy that in the bookstore <laughs> later today. That's not in the notes, and we'll keep going. See, the world we live in makes it tough to practice humility. But this quote that I'm going to put on the screen here has helped me in my definition. I love what uh, Marcus Bachmuel says about this. He says, instead of pursuing their own prestige, that strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion... The Philippians are called to humility, which is translated tapino frosune in the Greek, which means the lowliness of heart, which agrees to treat and think of others preferentially. The biblical view of humility is precisely not feigned or groveling, nor a sanctimonious or pathetic lack of self-esteem, but rather a mark of moral strength and integrity. It involves the unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies and the entrusting of one's fortunes to God rather than one's own abilities and resources. I love that. It's moral strength and it's integrity. It's not weakness to be humble. And what you say is, listen, I'm broken. I'm screwed up. 
But God in his great love and mercy has saved me and has provided in me the Holy Spirit to live for him. And I entrust myself to him. Because that's the only way it's going to go well. When we actually see ourselves for what we are, our conceit and our vainglory will recede. And we will begin to count others more significant than ourselves. And this is why Paul motivated us with the gospel and what Christ has done for us and is doing through us. Because that helps us to see who we really are, that it's all about Christ. And I turn my focus not on me, but on Him, and that I help others to do the same. See, Paul lived this way in word and in deed. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he said this, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is my desire. This is the desire of a Christian who's truly in love with Jesus to say, it's not about me, God. It's all about you. And as I look to God and I see everything that he's done for me, what I do is I say, I am a man who is low and I don't have it all together. And I want people to see you through me, Christ. And I want others to know you. And I want to serve them like you have served me. And what's going to happen here is next week, make sure you come back because Pastor Joe Bartimus is going to expound upon this idea of humility and he's going to show us Christ. In chapter 2 and verse 5, we see the perfect example of humility. And we are again motivated and reminded that it's all about him. I'm so excited to hear Joe preach on this so that we can see how great Christ is and how much it's all about Him and not about me, that I might be an imitator of Him for the good of others and the humbling of myself. Well, in closing, what I want to do is I want to bring us back to that big idea. Gospel motivation for pursuing unity through the practice of humility and look at some specific application points. So, Gospel motivation. How do we live out gospel motivation? To put it in a modern day term, make it your profile picture. View it every day and allow it to represent you and your efforts to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Let it be the first thing people see about you when they come to check you out. Oh, gospel. I actually tried this on my Facebook account. I got, a, I got a few likes, so I don't know if you want to do that, but gospel-centered. It's the first thing people see. Realize that it's not just something to understand. Yes, I understand the gospel. I have intellectual connection with the understanding of the gospel. But like the pictures that Paul calls the Philippians to, it stirs up emotions of comfort and affection, encouragement and fellowship. So what do we do? We meditate and we marinate and we muse on the implications of the good news in your own life. Do you love the gospel? Do you think about the gospel? Does the gospel change your life? 
J.D. Greer says this is how it happens. He says, gospel change is the spirit of God using the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts. One more time. Gospel change is the spirit of God using the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts. When you think about what God's love for you has done, how it was displayed at the cross, when you think about your new identity, I'm a completely new person in Christ, when you think about how the gospel empowers you to have victory over sin, are you motivated to pursue unity and humility and to share your faith and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus? That's how we live it out. We think about it. We let it infect ourselves. And then we let it pour out of us. So two then, how do we live out unity? How do we live in gospel-saturated togetherness? Well, we do that by moving beyond the shallow hangout times we like to think or fellowship. When we come together, we come with purpose. In the church, come with purpose. Put aside petty differences, the non-essential preferences that you might have, and pick up the mantle that says, this is all about God and not me. And then it's about others. Come to church in that way. In small groups, come with one mind. Do you have someone in your life who holds you accountable? Who helps you love God in a greater way? Who strives with you side by side to have victory over sin? Do you share the same mind? Does he know what's going on? Does she know what's going on in your head? So that she can speak, he can speak the gospel into those things. Come to your small groups with one mind. How do we live out unity, this gospel-saturated togetherness? And events and activities come striving together. The church was never meant to be our vending machine. Where if we put in just the right amount of time, we should get exactly what we want back. I love this church because the events are fraught with purpose to glorify God and to serve others and to benefit the believers of this place. Come and participate, striving together with those purposes in mind. Take up the summer challenge. Get outside of your comfort zone and say, God, this is about you. It's not about me and I want to serve others. And I know you will bless through those efforts. So I'm going to open up my home. And man, that's kind of scary, God. Because I don't know what to say to these people. But I'm going to show them, I'm going to reflect you as best I can before them. In relationships, come with purpose. So as a kid, I had three wooden blocks that would stack on top of each other. I think I made them VBS or something like that. But I grew up in a household that these three wooden blocks were on display for everybody. The three wooden blocks spelled out joy. And the J, the O and the Y. So the J stood for Jesus. The O stood for others. And the Y stood for yourself. And you stacked them up in those orders. I remember my mom or my dad every once in a while referring to that, Jesus, others, yourself. Oh, I get it. That's really hard. <laughs> it's really difficult. But when we, in, when we interact with each other, we come with joy. We come with this idea that it's about Jesus first. Then how do I serve others? 
then it's about myself. This isn't weakness. This isn't being walked on. It's a sign that the gospel is alive in your heart. And it's a sign of moral strength and integrity. So then finally, how do we live out humility? How are we humbly others directed? Well, here's the deal. I've been praying about this. That the Holy Spirit would reveal the area in your life where this is needed. See, because pride and selfishness is a sneaky thing. And it tends to hide in our lives. So how do we do this? We're just on our knees a lot. And we ask God to reveal in us where we struggle with others' directedness. It's got to be a matter of prayer, asking God, and then it's got to be a matter of humility by asking others. Ask your spouse, where do I struggle with serving others? Ask your kids, how have I struggled with serving others? Ask small group leaders or small group members or family members who you know will be honest with you and know that they're going to be biblically based in their approaches. So I can't sit here and say, this is how you are going to apply humility. But what I can say is, this is how the Bible says humility will show up. It will show up in godly parenting. It will be seen in godly friendships. It will be seen in godly churches. And it will be seen in godly people. But it's a prayerful approach to God asking that he would reveal in us where we need to be others directed and how we can be humble. Well, this morning, what my hope was is that we've walked through this big idea step by step. We've discovered that it's pulled straight from Scripture. Paul is telling us these things. And then we've gloried in the application of our lives today. My prayer also is that we would leave this morning motivated by the gospel to pursue unity in the church and practice humility in our own lives. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us with that by praying. God, we thank you for your word. And every time it's open, God, every time we go to it, we are forced to make a decision about what we will do with it. God, will you use your Holy Spirit in our lives? May it bring these things to mind as we go through our week. May it empower us to live it out as we interact in the church and with others. And then God, may it remind us of the forgiveness and the no condemnation that's available through Christ when we fail and screw it up. God, again, we we confess a deep and great need for you if any of this is going to work out. So help us to leave this place motivated by the gospel to pursue unity, practice humility. We love you and we thank you for what you will do. In your son's name, we pray, amen. So I believe it's my responsibility to let you out just a shade early. Thank you so much for coming today. Be blessed as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.